Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We've got a little bit of a busy show today, in part because of the tweets that the president unleashed over the weekend. We feel like uh, we do need to, to talk about that and talk about, in particular, how people ought to be responding to these things, which we see from the president not infrequently, right? Uh, this is somebody who is, I think, trying to provoke us uh, to respond in a certain way to some of the things that he says. He's also, of course, trying to play to his supporters and get them to react in a certain way. We're going to have a conversation uh, with somebody who works in the space of trying to encourage civil discourse about what we ought to be saying. You can't just turn the other cheek or turn away from the things that the president is saying. But how do you respond without going as low as he goes in the way that he says those things? So you're going to want to stay tuned to that conversation. We'll get to it at about 940. But first, there is still stigma around mental health in our society, in the way we talk about it, in the way we treat it, and where it ranks in our priorities. But there is a new mental health phenomenon emerging, and it's one that we're likely all going to feel the effects of in the near future. It's called ecological grief, and it sits at the intersection of mental health and climate change, with extreme weather patterns becoming the new normal, species loss, climate devastation, and expert voices telling us that in the not-too-distant future, some of us may even perish, this feeling of grief actually seems pretty reasonable. So... What do we do about it? How do we cope with that? A Canadian public health researcher has been thinking about these questions and studying this new mental health condition. She joins us now. I want to welcome Ashley Consolo, a public health researcher and director of the Labrador Institute of Memorial University in Happy Valley Goose Bay in the Canadian province of Newfoundland and Labrador to the program. Ashley, it's great to have you here. Uh, good morning, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, when did you first start noticing this condition? And, and talk to us about what this condition is from your perspective and how you, how you identify it. Yeah, so ecological grief is really a grief that, uh, as you mentioned in your opening, that's felt in relationship to any experience losses that we've had around beloved species or ecosystems or landscapes that are important to us, or even anticipated losses, um, things that we know that are coming or are already shifting. And this can be because of, um, you know, very acute and rapid things like hurricanes and forest fires, or it can be long-term kind of chronic environmental change like warming temperatures and, and loss of sea ice. Um, this is a phenomenon that uh, I really started studying and learning about from Inuit uh, in northern Canada and northern Labrador. And so back in 2008, um, the Nunatsiavut government, which is an Inuit land claims region of Canada, uh, started to do research around the impacts of climate change on all aspects of health and well-being. And one of the biggest impacts that was coming up was around mental health. And within that context of mental health, a lot of people were talking about this, this concept of grief and loss and mourning and sadness and pain that comes from watching their landscapes and their ecosystems change. Mm. Uh, when we talk about this idea of this being a particular mental health phenomenon, is this something that's new or is this something that's been around a while or is it sort of uh, related to other kinds of uh, mental stress? That's a great question. I, I certainly think that it's not a new phenomenon in terms of people 
experiencing grief or sadness around the loss of something important to them in the environment or something important to them in place. I mean, I think for, you know, thousands of years, people have been deeply connected to environments and ecosystems. And when that shifts, we have this sort of deeply emotional or visceral reaction. I think that what's different now is um, in this current time of rapidly changing climates, and what some people have labeled as, you know, the sixth mass extinction, we're seeing so many, um, you know, just extreme weather events, forest fires, flooding, um, loss of species. And so we're living in this kind of time of, of rapid and chaotic change. And I think that what we're looking for now are, are language to express what people are feeling. And so I think the term ecological grief is really a response to what people have been already feeling all around the world and what people have been feeling for hundreds of, of years when they experienced this loss. But it's kind of entering into the lexicon now as an important way of explaining this phenomenon that we have when we feel mourning and grief related to to these unprecedented losses. Hmm. One of the things that strikes me here is the differences that that uh, could emerge from the ways in which this plays out in people's lives. So, so where you are, for instance, uh, you're you're seeing uh, something very particular to the region uh, of the world that you're in and the people who live there, the Inuit population, for instance, in northern Labrador. Uh, here in Detroit, uh, things look a little different, but because uh, climate change is something that, of course, is unfolding all over the planet, uh, it's kind of a, um, uh, I, I guess there's a, there's a connection between uh, all of these different things. But I wonder what you make of the ways in which uh, those differences, uh, the differences in climate, the differences in the things that we might see up close about what is changing in the climate uh, might play out for folks. Yeah, so it is very place-specific. Um, and the, the larger feelings of grief and loss we're finding are very similar all around the world with the different studies that are emerging. But it is very place-specific. So if you're in a place um, where you have you know, lots of um, heat waves or increased wildfires or flooding versus in place where, where I live with lots of sea ice and, and warming temperatures. Um, what you're grieving is different, but the responses of how people are grieving seems to be very similar. Um, so one of the studies that, that I've been involved in um, is looking at how Inuit in, in northern Canada were experiencing this and then working with colleagues in Australia who were looking at um, farmers dealing with uh, extreme drought um, and drought that was going on for years and years and how that was impacting their mental health, including feelings of, of ecological grief. And so even though we have these two very different um, environments, very different cultures, geographies, um, situations that they're dealing with within a climate, uh, changing climate, what we were finding is that the, the ways that people were experiencing grief and how they were identifying it was virtually identical. Um, and in many cases, we would look at quotes and you, it would seem like it was from one place or the other. So you could remove sea ice and put um, drought and mm. it would look almost identical uh, and this was, was really telling for us because what we're seeing is, yes, people are, are mourning and grieving place, but that is, is a, a much larger um, experience that people are having all over the world. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Ashley Con Consolo. She is a public health researcher and director of the Labrador Institute of Memorial University. We're talking about the idea of ecological 
grief, a mental health condition that is brought on by the profound climate change dynamics that we see unfolding around us. Weather patterns, uh, traumatic storms, those kinds of things, dramatic change in the landscape and the environment around us. Uh, it can cause some people to suffer from uh, a particular kind of grief. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us if this is something that you are experiencing. Do you have ecological grief? If so, when did it start? Is it something that's constant with you, is something that you always feel, or is it uh, something that you feel when, for instance, we have these traumatic storms that uh, seem much more frequent and much more intense and have consequences that we're not really accustomed to quite yet here in Metro Detroit. Uh, tell us what you're doing to get through this kind of grief and tell us how it's affecting your kids. It's a really important dynamic here is how something like this affects young people. Uh, as always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Ashley, I want to ask you about uh, inequity in the way that this uh, condition impacts people. Um, obviously, there's there's all kinds of inequality uh, that, that we could point out on, uh, around the globe. I wonder uh, if you can talk about the way in which this grief reflects some of that inequality. Yeah, I think that's that's a really key question at, at this point in time. And one of the things that we do know about climate change is it is often um, experienced inequitably across the globe. So women, um, children, indigenous populations, uh, marginalized populations, and people of color are often experiencing um, a much stronger impact from, from climate change and the resulting impacts. So when we're looking at ecological grief, we're seeing the same patterns in, in the early research that's coming out. So people who live closest um, and rely closest to the environment, so indigenous peoples, um, farmers, fishers, um, anyone that's sort of deeply connected for their livelihoods, for their culture, and for their spiritual connections are also experiencing um, what appears to be an inequitable amount of ecological grief. I think um, another piece that is coming up, too, is people who don't um, necessarily have access to mental health care or even um, other forms of health care, you know, whether it's, um, you know, access to counselors or, or community supports um, or things that are just uh, create healthier um, well-being in an individual. So we're seeing that, that um, you know, if you don't have access to the mental health supports, then any form of mental health stressor, including climate change and including ecological grief, becomes harder to deal with. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the things that, uh, that people should be doing if they're feeling this way, if they are experiencing this kind of grief? Is it like any other mental health stressor and you just... Uh, treated the same way, or are there are there peculiar kinds of uh, responses to this? Well, it's an interesting form of grief um, because it's not a grief that is necessarily known um, publicly very much, or is something that has that kind of um, the social rituals that go with with other forms of death and loss. Um, so when we lose a person that's a, a family member, a friend, or a beloved individual, there are rituals that we have, and, and many, many cultures around the world have ways to mark rites of passage and, and, and death. 
Um, when it comes to loss of ecological things, sometimes uh, it can be, you know, a forest or a lake or, you know, a weather system. And so that's, that's much larger and much harder to kind of tangibly mourn and grieve. Um, but also we don't have the same rituals. So what a lot of people are doing, including mental health counselors and, and um, community activists, are bringing people together to talk about, um, you know, how they're experiencing other forms of loss related to the environment and giving people a, a space and a place to come together to talk about it. And I think that this is one of the most important things that we can do right now is, is to really, um, you know, share it and, and make it known and start talking about pieces that we are, we are all untouched or, or not untouched now by climate change. I mean, we see it in the media, we're experiencing it directly, we experience it indirectly. So these are kind of moments that we can share together and, and start talking about it. Again, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. We've already got a lot of folks queued up to talk about this subject. Let's get to Sean in Detroit. Sean, what's on your mind? Hi, I'm I, uh, really interested in this subject. Um, one of my favorite authors writes a lot about the environment named Wendell Berry, and he's written that sure. there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. And what brings that to mind is a lot of what I'm hearing here is about, you know, global changes with weather patterns or um, changes in the in the environment, uh, kind of on a global scale. And and I'm wondering if your study at all covers the grief people feel from the loss caused by man through industrialization, uh, old factories, um, ruined areas, old tire plants, which. Mm-hmm keep a land from being used again, and whether or not there's a link between the two, if there's really any distinction. Mm. Uh, Sean, uh, that's a really great question, and I also want to note that I love your shout-out to uh, Wendell Berry, uh, who is a great Kentuckian. Uh, I spent the first few years of my career working in Kentucky, and I'm uh, a big fan of Wendell Berry as well. Uh, Ashley Consolo, I wonder if you can uh, answer some of the things that uh, Sean raises there. Yeah, thanks for the question, Sean. I'm a big fan of Wendell Berry as well. I mean, I think he's an incredible thinker and uh, was well beyond times, and I think his work is something that we should all be reading. Your question around the, the industrialization and the, the other forms of desecrated landscapes is, is excellent. Some of the early work that really sparked out um, the climate change and mental health, but also environmental change and mental health and loss and grief, came from a concept um, by Australian philosopher Glenn Albrick, and he called uh, this concept solastalgia, and it's the, the homesickness that we feel while we're still at home. And he, um, that concept emerged while studying large-scale industrial um, development in, in Australia, and, and in this case it was mines. And so this, uh, this idea of, of solastalgia and this loss and this um, you know, pain that we feel when we're, we're watching our place shift uh, because things are, are being developed or, or there's, you know, different types of human-induced um, pollution or discre- uh, destruction really is um, at the forefront of what a lot of people do feel that grief from. So while it's often linked to climate change, um, I always discuss it within the terms of any environmental change um, that's, that's human-induced that we're, we're seeing shift because of our activities on the landscape and activities that are, are drastically, in, in many cases, altering landscapes that we love. Mm. Sean, again, thanks very much for 
the call, and the questions. Let's go to Lisa in Pleasant Ridge. Lisa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, This is a great topic. It actually gives me a word to talk about something that I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, And, you know, you feel this kind of grief, or I do, anytime I sort of open the newspaper. But my family was in Colorado last summer, and we were vacationing, and we were traveling around as, you know, the landscape around us was burning. I mean, we weren't in a forest fire, but they were all around us. And I was just thinking how different, and I was reading Richard Powers' overstory at the same time, which is also sort of about the loss of trees. And I was just thinking how different, you know, my experience of camping was when I was a kid from what my children are experiencing, you know, that, that whenever they, they travel anywhere, there's, there's always this, this loss. And I guess my, my question is, you know, how does one talk to children about this in a way that they mm. don't feel disempowered? I mm. tend to feel really um, suspicious of nostalgia. I, I, I think it's, I, I mean, I understand it, but I, it, it can be very passive. And, and, and I guess the, the question is, how do you talk to children and, and yourself um, in a way that can sort of help you move forward and, and still be engaged when the fight just seems so huge? Wow. Uh, great question. Uh, and thanks very much for the call. Uh, Ashley Consolo, how do we tell our kids about this? Uh, and I would add to Lisa's question, not just uh, how to tell them in a way that, that empowers them, but tells them in a way that doesn't inspire a lot of fear. Uh, I mean, I think some of these things can be quite scary. Lisa, this is a question that I struggle with every day. I have uh, five boys, (laughs) and I've been studying climate change for about 15 years. And about 10 years ago, my oldest son uh, made just a casual comment at, at the dinner table when I was talking about my research. And he just sort of said, you know, this is so sad, I don't want to hear any more about it. Mm. And I thought, wow, I hadn't been thinking about the impacts of me being a climate researcher and and looking at mental health and loss and grief and then talking about it casually at the the table in a way that I thought, well, you know, this is really great. I'm I'm educating my children. We're having these conversations. They're part of my work. And I, I didn't realize the extent of the mental load that that was happening. So not only were they hearing it from me, but then they're hearing it in school, they see it in the media, it's all over, you know, disaster Hollywood movies. And so this is something that that people all around the world right now are really focusing on, is the complete mental load and burden that youth are feeling. Um, And how do we, this is a very different time for children growing up um, and for youth growing up, and they're facing these huge, huge things and carrying a a lot of fear. And I think that your comment around being suspicious of nostalgia is excellent because we do spend so much time saying to our kids, oh, you know, it used to be like this, but now look what you have. And that's sending out this message that what they're facing is a much worse version of reality and is much scarier. And so I think, you know, the the key is, is exactly what you said. How do we have these conversations so that people can feel empowered um, and not overwhelmed by the enormity of it. And I think that's where we need to start having really deep discussions about how do we build um, mental and emotional resilience in youth in general, but also how do we include youth in decision-making. And I think where I take a lot of inspiration is is the youth movements that are happening around the globe that were sparked out by Greta Thornburg in Sweden 
um, and seeing the youth passionate and empowered and demanding change, um, but simultaneously also recognizing that the mental burden is enormous and we have to find ways to, to support them in facing the realities that they're going to face but not be crippled by them. Mm. Yeah, Lisa, thanks uh, very much for the call and the really, really incisive, uh, incisive question there. Um, let's go to Birch in Detroit. Birch, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for identifying this for me. I heard the word ecological grief and was just, boom, that's it's something I've been trying to out for a long time. It might be logical terror to me. I have extreme anxiety around these issues. I find myself going more and more. Instead of one camping trip, I need three summer and just to be with the trees and to settle down. Hmm. Um, I live in the city, just plant trees and plant and do is to like build a forest. Yeah, Birch, and, we're, uh, we're having a hard time uh, with your connection, but I think I, I think I get the gist of what you're you're talking about there. The the idea of the difficulty with uh, with dealing with this kind of uh, feelings and the, the the ways in which they come up even here uh, in the city as well as when you go out to the forest and uh, try to try to get away from the city it's all uh, sort of interconnected thanks very much again for the call and the comments let's go to Caleb in Detroit Caleb welcome to Detroit today hi thank you hey, go ahead. so yeah I was just you know talking about the the subject of was the impact on children and stuff. And I think it's just, it does a lot to the children's uh, mental state if they don't see the adults take this seriously. Hmm. I live in the city, and my daughter, she's 19 now, but all of her classmates, they care or know nothing about recycling or worrying about climate change because most of the parents don't make it part of their life. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, it's just you know if they don't see us doing something, how are they supposed to be helpful with anything? Yeah, Caleb, that's a great that's a great point too. Uh, Ashley Consolo, uh, talk about the modeling, I guess that uh, that we need to have adults doing to make sure that our kids respond the right way to all of this. Yeah, I mean, I think as adults, we have a tremendous amount of responsibility, um, not only to to ourselves and to our children, but also to the planet. Um, and some of that responsibility means also ensuring that children and youth have the opportunity to get involved and make the changes that they want to see. Um, certainly, when we're when we're in these sort of times of what many people call a global crisis and you know the movement away from using climate change to climate crises i think is is very apt and so i think it's it's adults um you know coming forward and and being the models and the leaders that we need but also um adults giving youth the respect um, and the opportunities to get involved, because in, in many cases we know from, from other types of research that it's youth that actually change the households, that they're at the, the forefront, so they come home and they push for change, so they push for the recycling or the reusing or the other forms of um, environmental stewardship that we have out there. So it's, it's kind of a, a reciprocal relationship where adults really need to take ownership over it, but then also respect when youth come forward with, with ideas and, and want to make the change, because really um, they are the leaders of now and the leaders of what's coming, and it's their generation that will really be facing um, what our generation and previous generations have created. Okay, Ashley Consolo, uh, public health researcher and director of the Labrador Institute of Memorial University in Happy Valley, Goose Bay. 
Thanks very much for being here with us for this great conversation. Oh, it was my pleasure. And thanks to everyone who called in. All right. Up next, we're going to take a look at a proposed ordinance to assess the city of Detroit's greenhouse gas emissions with the goal of limiting the city's carbon footprint in the future. And also stay tuned in a little bit. We're going to talk about President Trump's racist tweets over the weekend about several brown skinned congresswomen, including our own Rashida Tlaib from right here in southeast Michigan. Stay with us on Detroit Today. 